You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Hello everyone, welcome back to episode 147 of Arsenal Pass. Hayden Dale here with Brendan Patrick. This week on the pod, we have a special guest coming to join us. Uh, after we get through a little bit of news quickly, we've got the one, the only lead game developer and game designer for Flesh and Blood, Brian Gottlieb, who just returned from the Calling Queenstown and the Celebration Weekend. Got to hang out with uh, Brian for a little bit, Brendan, actually, uh, when he found me after I finished O3ing my draft and missing top eight at the Calling after win- losing four win-ins and said, hey, you want to jump in the booth and quickly just chat about your draft with me? It'll go really well and won't be an issue at all. And I said, no problem, Brian. I'm feeling top of the world right now. Let's do it. <laughs> yep. But this interview is fantastic. Honestly, I think the what Brian shared with us about particularly heavy hitters, but also the future of game design. And um, yeah, I'm, I was super G'd up by the time we finished that that pod or that interview with with Brian, which we're gonna we're gonna share with you very soon. If you've never listened to a Brian Gottlieb interview on this podcast, then you're in for a treat. I mean, if you're interested in the future of Flesh and Blood, the current state of game design, and everything that goes on behind the scenes, we really dig into it on here. And Brian is one of the most articulate people that exists on this planet, to be honest, and Legendary Studios is genuinely lucky to have him as their spokesperson, even though that is not his responsibility or his title. The man is, in my opinion, one of the most most important people in flesh and blood right now, and I appreciate him coming Mm -hmm. on our podcast and giving us his time on what might be every single set now. So thank you to Brian (laughs) Gottlieb, and honestly, you all are going to enjoy this a lot. He did promise it. Yeah, just quickly, uh, Weeks in Flesh and Blood, by the time this pod drops, we would have, I think, just played the pre-release so or maybe some people are still finishing off their pre-releases um super excited for that brennan are you playing pre-releases or have you i guess by the time played pre-releases <laughs> yeah i will play the one at reaper uh for sure it's the only nice. one i have locked in the the pre-releases there are huge to be honest like they can be 30 to 50 awesome. people so um yeah we'll see um we'll see i'm really interested to i've i just we just came off the back of the podcast where brian was saying this is the best sealed format they've ever created so i'm excited for it to be honest like i really liked i genuinely enjoyed welcome to a sealed i genuinely enjoyed the sealed format i enjoyed draft as well but i looked forward to playing welcome to a sealed if this is anything like that i'm sure you'll enjoy this too yeah and uh, brian's not chatting chaff there either i think this is the best best sealed format they've created so far um just quickly, let's uh, jump into some news. Heavy Hitters release is this weekend. Uh, get amongst it. Check out the SEAL video if you want some tips on SEAL, if you're playing any release events or planning to play any more SEAL. We did a video before pre-release. Uh, that will be up as well by the time this pod drops. Gameplay videos are coming soon. We've got some gameplay videos in the works. Uh, and then just lastly, if you haven't seen this already and you're thinking about qualifying for nationals this year, just important to note there has been some changes to the qualification for nationals and how you can get your invites. ELO, now that we've seen that removed for Pro Tour Amsterdam, LSS have also made the announcement that ELO, uh, sorry, not ELO, XP, XP removed. XP invites are being removed for nationals that will move to the ELO system and with the rolling out of the new combined ELO leaderboard, which should be coming soon, I believe. Uh, that is how you can qualify for nationals outside of top fouring your road to nationals events. Uh, you can qualify, depending on the cap, There'll be, you know, X amount of slots effectively, depending on your region for ELO leaderboard in your in your country. So go and check that out. I know, Brennan, been a lot of discussion about this. Um, I, I mean, I personally don't really have an opinion at this stage. I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I know Alice have said 
sort of taking back the armories for what they should be, which is, you know, less competitive grind and uh, more weekly casual and community yeah. based events. So that's what's tough is that flesh and blood right now, and we get into it on the pod to an extent is that flesh and blood is synonymous with competitive play. Most aspects of flesh and blood, and most aspects of flesh and blood that I understand and ever see are related to competitive play. Those players at the armory level, usually they are competitive players. They might not be on the pro tour or the world championship scene yet, but they're aspiring to it to some extent. Um, that's been the example, not the exception so far for me, mm-hmm. but you know, we do see flesh and blood, designing for a more casual experience for a multiplayer experience and i think that's very good the game needs to grow in both on both ends it needs to grow on the competitive yeah. side and the casual side in regards to xp yeah i mean hayden and i really don't have too much to say on it because it, it genuinely doesn't affect us too much like i'm sure there is a subgroup of players where this negatively affects them significantly and will have to try to qualify for these tournaments in different ways but for us, I mean, it, we're qualifying the same way we were before, basically, uh, which is, you know, road to nationals or buying qualifying. PCI. Yeah, oh, buy your fucking... <laughs> okay. Sorry. All right, all right, all right. <sighs> Just coming out with that fire. Got yeah. him. I do apologize. I, I would have liked to, if I had remembered, actually had it on my, my notes to ask Brian, but I didn't get to in the pod because we been so deep on heavy hitters, yes. which is how do they plan to incentivize players to participate in armories? without that carrot on the stick that was an XP invite to these national championships or you know, yes. high-level events. I've, I've got a little bit of that from the weekend, actually. What I um, heard, I don't want to say who said it because um, I don't know if they were meant to say this or whatever, but basically, from what I understand, is with armories, they're going to revitalize what the armories look like. That's the kind of the, the short-term plan. The promos that, uh, you know, they've, they've been a little bit underwhelming, to be honest, right? Some of the promos at armory level, especially the rainbow foil participation promos. Mm-hmm. So I believe there is a, a revitalization coming to to the armory program. And I think a really clear, I mean, they've said it in this article as well, a really clear delineation between competitive um, play and, you know, weekly community casual. And um, we asked Brian about this, right? Like, how do you foster uh, in, the, in the pod, how do you foster kind of both a competitive aspect, but also you know, new player aspect and welcome people in. And it's really tough, I think, if you've got people coming to armories for 90 days to grind for their um, XP so they can get their Nats invite, you know. There's 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 other ways to do that. We now have the ELO leaderboard. Um, and I can understand there's some concern, right? Like, hey, why go to armories, right? But I think um, I think Alice is fully aware of, of, of that question and that kind of question mark hanging over it. And there's some plans to, um, to do that. Like, uh, personally speaking, Brendan, like I'm going to go and play armories before PTLA because I just want to play the game. I just mm. want to play some class constructed. Um, I want to play some drafts and that has nothing to do with XP, but I know that's not the same for everyone. So we're fully aware. I think Alice is fully aware. Um, so I would say also there's been changes, but stay tuned for further changes to come, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have, a, we have a long interview to get into, but in regards to, yeah, armories and stuff like that, for me, it's really interesting. I, I play uh, quite a few card games, but I like playing card games that I have little experience in at the local level, at the army level. That has nothing to do with the player skill, but for some reason, I like, I just do that. So even now with like Larkana, as I've gotten more experience with the game, I don't really play locally as much. I choose to play online as more of a testing and refinement of my craft. Um, Flash and Blood is very much in that category. So like, you know, I might go and play like something like One Piece, something I don't know anything about at a local level. Um, that's just how armies are for me. Also, we've talked about the pot a million times. For me, my armory scene is flourishing, but 
they're all equidistant in this like in this in this in this range that is slightly outside of what is what is reasonable for me in the evening. I do all of my recording in the evening, so thirty minutes there, thirty minutes back is just slightly out. It's just too much out of range for me to uh, to be honest. Uh, if there was one that was five minutes away or ten minutes away, I might be able to swing it. But yeah, I mean, just the way podcasting works, it's like it all happens in the evening, so it's it's tough for me. Um, ultimately, the armory change doesn't affect me. I know some players will be very local about it. Uh, sorry, local about it, vocal about it. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I don't think it, it upsets the status quo too much. We will have to see as the system plays out in the future. Legend Story Studios, and you'll hear Brian talk about this a million times on the podcast. They make these decisions with intent, and they think about them a lot before they make them. So I would say let, let it sit a bit. You know, Experience the system, let it sit, see how it plays out, give it some time before you, you know, jump on the bandwagon of negative feedback. Agree, agree. Uh, look, people are going to think we're playing the uh, intro to this podcast at 1.2 times speed, but that's because we have an interview to get to. And honestly, it's absolute banger and I want to give it all the attention and time we can give it. So, Brendan, I think with that said, um, let's jump over and uh, go to the interview. Welcome back to the pod for a third time. Flesh and blood, game developer, game designer and lead developer, Brian Gottlieb. I made sure before we jumped to the pod, I got your, uh, your new title correct. How are you, Brian? You still, you still kind of blew it a little bit, Hayden. Even yeah, as I, I teed you up with the perfect information. That's okay. I get confused sometimes too. I don't blame you. Yeah. How have you been? You've just uh, returned back from Queenstown Calling and World Premiere. Did you spend any extra time in Queenstown or did you come straight back to Auckland, back to the office? Well, I was I was there early for the celebrational, so I did get to do a bunch of uh, like touristy type stuff, all the stuff that was involved with the celebrational that you may have seen some of the absolutely absurd pictures from over the, the past week. Uh, but I didn't stay any time afterwards. I was I was back in the office the next day. Turns out you people are just ravenous for more flesh and blood sets. So I had to get back and, and get to making future sets. Uh, it's weird, like coming off the highs of heavy hitters, uh, you don't really get to chill with it all that long. And actually like sitting down and playing heavy hitters, because I played a bunch of the sealed events this weekend, I kind of just want to hang out and play some more heavy hitters, but we got to make the next set. We can't go back to that one. So uh, maybe I'll find some time for pre-releases this weekend. I forgot to ask you. I was meant to ask you this when I was there, but what's the when was the last time you had played with heavy hitters before that weekend? I mean, it's nearly a year, very close to a year at that point, approximately. I don't I don't know the exact date, but it, it had been a while. And definitely, as you move forward, you start to uh, just erase some of the things that either made you fond or you didn't like about the set. And before we went down to Queenstown, uh, James and I got together and we were playing a little bit of Team Sealed. And as we were playing, I was like, man, I forgot how much I love this set. Like, I was so excited to re-engage with it. Um, and I'll get to, you know, as, as coverage opportunities and things like that come up and as I get to watch the new metagame develop. So it, it's cool to see it all come to fruition. Talk to me about what the celebrational means for you and the company. It seems like it's this marquee event that has topped off three years of success. How important was this event to Legend Story Studios? And is it something that I know that you came on the team a little bit late, only in the past year or so, but it, is it something the team has been planning for a long time? And is it sort of that metric of success, right? Like we had this big tournament, we invited all of our content creators, like it just... It seemed, I remember James actually talked to me about this, kind of like, you know, he was very cryptic about it. But a few years ago, he was like, we're going to, we're going to give people a reason to come to New Zealand. We're going to give them a reason. We're going to give them a reason. And I'm assuming that that's what this was. Just tell me a little bit about how, how monumental this, what this event was for you all at LSS. It was 
it's just incredible, man. Like it, it feels like uh, in a lot of ways it was, it was a realization of a vision that James had for a very long time. Like I remember some of the first conversations we ever had together talking about other invitational style uh, events in other games in the past and how badly he wanted to bring that to flesh and blood and, you know, how he hoped everything would break in such a way that we got to do that for our players one day. And it was, you know, as much as it was a celebration for LSS, it was also a thank you at the same time, right? Like all of these people who have worked really hard around the game and it was bigger than just players too. It was, it was judges and cosplayers and all of these people who are like critical to building up this, this thing, this massive thing that we've created. Uh, it, it was so busy and so hectic that it was really hard to actually like stop in the moment and appreciate it. But what I found was often there were dinners at nights and we'd go out to these dinners and I'd just like look down the table and it was this massive group of people from literally all over the world. And they were, you know, they were from Japan, they were from the US, they were from Germany, they were from uh, Singapore, just all every conceivable place you could imagine. And they're all sitting together, sharing a meal, smiling, laughing, having a great time. And like, there were definitely moments in that kind of quiet time where I was like, yep, that's the realization. Like that is the thing that was supposed to happen from all of this. And it was awesome to see it uh, just completely embodied by the people who were there and having a great time. And I, I you know, I'm kind of like, I feel bad talking about it because I know not everyone was there. And like, I, I wish everyone in our community, I wish you guys could have been there. Uh, obviously, Arsenal passed a huge part of like my journey into flesh and blood. I see you guys as absolutely foundational to this history of the game. The problem is like, you just can't have everyone. And, uh, you know, always feels bad to not have all of your friends there. Um, you guys were with me in spirit, just so you know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I really do mean that. I think about like your guys' contribution to my understanding of flesh and blood all the time. It's very important to me and it means a lot to me. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure if you heard any of our rhetoric um, around that aspect of the Invitational because obviously there was some people that were very vocal um, on Twitter and vocal off of Twitter. And I, Hayden and I both encountered people that were you know, they were felt a lot more strongly about that aspect of the event than we did. And I, I really tried to stress on the podcast that this event is a win for LSS, is a win for flesh and blood. And to look at it, look at it in any way that is not that is in my sort of reductive um, way of explaining, I called it, it's just cringe, you know, like the company, the game is trying to do something special. This is like our big event to celebrate three years of hard work and success. And to, you know, try to put any negativity onto that, I just felt like was a disservice. So I know for me and Hayden, like, although it's of course, like we, we would have loved to go, we are very happy for the game and everybody that was able to attend. And I, like, I am genuinely like, I, I think it's awesome. Like, I, I really can't explain it any deeper than that, but I just want to make sure that, like, you know, our stance on it is is very clear because that, that is genuinely what we believe. And we're very happy for everyone at LSS, everyone that was able to go. And I think it was a very successful event. I have to ask you, though, how successful was it? Are you planning to do it again in the future? It seems like, you know, it's probably not going to be a, a yearly thing, um, but are you coming away from this event just wanting wanting more, wanting to make it happen again? Oh, I, absolutely. I want more, but I don't have to plan for it, nor do I have to pay for it. So obviously <laughs> I want more. That's It was an unbelievable event, and I, I think it exceeded everyone's expectations. But the amount of effort, like th there's just so many people behind the scenes yeah. that worked so, so hard to put this together that 
y'all may not be familiar with, or, or you guys might be, you know, there's, there's folks like, uh, you know, Trevor, who is very much instrumental in, in getting all this together. And then I think of folks like Tom in our OP department, mm-hmm. who not only like had a role in putting it together, but if you saw him on the weekend was just running like a crazy person, trying to make sure everyone had everything that they needed. Everyone was in the right spot. Everyone was organized. Everyone was shuttled from place to place. It was just a huge, huge undertaking. I've never seen really anything like it in my time with TCGs. Um, so do I think it's happening again next year? I, I would be shocked if it did, but uh, I, I'm sure we'll have many more like awesome milestones and awesome things to celebrate mm-hmm. as we move down the road. Yeah. I want to shift it a little bit and ask you just uh, a short question, but a big question, which is just the current state of flesh and blood from your eyes as now the lead game designer and um, game developer. I'm sure I butchered the title worse than Hayden did on the intro. Um, but what do you think is the current state of flesh and blood? How are you feeling about the game? And what do you talk to me about a little bit about the forward momentum? Is the game growing? Where is it growing? And just what do you think the future is right now? Uh, I feel really good. I, mm-hmm. I think it's hard to come away from that weekend not feeling really good. Uh, the game is growing. It's expanding into new places. Uh, you know, I, I think in some regions, the growth rate has cooled off a bit, but it's still growing. And there's some regions where it's still absolutely stratospheric and, and growing at a breakneck pace. And, you know, particularly markets like Asia, where I think mm-hmm. things are really starting to accelerate in those places. And, um I, I am most excited because I know what we're working on and I know what's coming down the pipeline this year, next year. And I know that you're only going to start to see the beginning of focused efforts to uh, get people on board and to do a better job setting people up for success as they find flesh and blood. We're mm-hmm. only getting to that point. And it's, you're starting to see small manifestations of that with things like uh, blitz decks. I don't know if you all had the chance to take a look at the contents of uh, these heavy hitters blitz decks or the fact that there's you know just just little things like there's there's six of them there's tips and tricks cards included mm-hmm. uh you know difficulty ratings there's reasons to really want these blitz decks in terms of the full arts included and the rainbow foil heroes and just trying to serve uh you know the burgeoning player a little bit better those mm-hmm. are only tiny steps we're taking to do that there's a lot more coming down the pipe that will be focused on new player experience on things like uh you know, broadening the player base, making sure it's not just this hyper competitive thing, which we love and we will never, ever de-emphasize, by the way, like that is critical to absolutely all of us. And coming from another game that de-emphasize that side of things, yeah. I, I do understand the trepidation when you start talking about other ways to play. That's that's not the intention. It's, it's about lifting up all sides uh, simultaneously. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of good stuff coming in the next couple of years that will achieve these goals. Yeah. yeah um, you, actually, you actually answered my, my follow-up question, which is, uh, I was going to ask you, what is Flesh and Blood? Is Flesh and Blood this hyper-competitive game that's focused on professional play? Um, it is very spiky, uh, you know, high skill expression, high barrier to entry, you know, very high skill floor, or is it this more casual game, UPF, I know we see the templating on a lot of cards change, the wording on a lot of cards change, and it, you do get that UPF feel, that multiplayer feel. Like, <clears throat> do you think that 
you kind of, like I said, you kind of answered the question, but is flesh and blood that hyper competitive game? Cause we've, we've had two things kind of happen in the, in the past year, um, which is the Templium cards has obviously changed that UPF and multiplayer formats is being more supported. There's a lot more forethought that's going into it, but at the same time, the pro professional play prize pool went from a million dollars to a million and a half dollars. Do you think as, you know, as a representative of LSS, you can push both professional and competitive play and casual play at the same time? Absolutely. I do. And it, it means, you know, expanding teams, expanding products, uh, expanding pro play. Like, I, I just think that was always the thing that rubbed me the wrong way about, uh, and it just won't beat around the bush, Magic's move towards Commander. Uh, it was always presented as a dichotomy. Like, mm -hmm. you, you had to go ahead and push the commander side because that's what was popular now and it just makes sense to make commander products and obviously you're going to de-emphasize pro play and to me i as like competitive player who that was the main way of engaging with the game for decades i'm like well can't you just use all this money you're making from the edh side and funnel it back into pro play and and use it to expand teams and i i didn't really understand why it had to be one or the other and the answer is it doesn't we can just lift up all elements of the game flesh and blood simultaneously and you know you're right there are some templating things that happened uh especially you can point to heavy hitters and you look at things like the equipment set which scales based on how many players have more life than you but those cards do what we want them to do in the yeah. limited environment like uh, uh, frankly they were just like iron rots for a while and then we're like well we could make iron rot that's fine that's what we're looking for in this slot for a limited perspective or we could do something else simultaneously and i think we have to challenge ourselves as designers developers to understand how you serve both of these sides of your game simultaneously but we're doing that and if i don't know if you all caught it uh hayden i doubt you played any but there were upf drafts going on mm -hmm. at uh queenstown and there was a lot of people playing that format really really exciting to see that people are wanting to engage in that fashion and uh, i will leave this up to you guys but i do not think heavy hitters suffers as a limited format for the upf concessions the very small upf concessions we made uh to go ahead and make that format a little bit more interesting well we can we can definitely talk about that i think first of all i just i think it's great to hear because both brendan and i have been pretty outspoken about the need for what we feel for flesh and blood to have a better onboarding process than maybe previous in terms of new players whether that be for new players wanting to get into the casual aspect of the game or the competitive aspect of the game so so hearing that you you feel like there's an entryway there's a pathway forward for both paths simultaneously and more approachability i think is is, is great to hear i want to talk about about the limited side of, of heavy hitters a little bit because obviously celebrational was one half of last week but then the world premiere and the calling and i think just off the bat i do just want to echo you know i, I put some feelers out to to friends to to play groups to people at the weekend just to, i was asking you know, how's your experience been what's been happening what have you been enjoying and honestly i think just a, a big congratulations to to yourself brian and the, the full team lss on heavy hitters because the buzz around the venue on the weekend everyone was super excited to play this limited format you know in previous limited formats maybe the the seal format hasn't been looked upon as favorably and i think by the end of the weekend people were were keen to play more you know the the lines for the side events on the sunday afternoon people were like trying to get in the upf drafts as you say we were drafting on the sunday after the event people were still playing sealed events so um i do just you know first of all want to say it it seems like you know you've got a hit on your hands and the anticipation from the set seems seems really massive um trying to pre-order cards has been a bit of a nightmare actually 
there's a lot of popularity. People want people want cards in hands. But I want to ask you about specifically the world premiere and the calling because this is something we've seen previously. We had the uprising world premiere in three locations around the world and the team calling. And this is the second time we've seen this. Is this a way forward? Is this something we're going to see more often from yourselves at LSS, these world premieres and callings? Because having been two of these now, the, the atmosphere, the enjoyability is just kind of off the scales really. Yeah. So I, I just want to be clear that I, I don't work on that side. So these are decisions that ultimately don't lie with me. And I, I don't know the answer to that question. I will tell you that as someone who was there in the room, I absolutely came back here thinking we got to do more world premieres. It, I mean, it was awesome. It was an incredible vibe in the room. And I, I would love to see it happen more and more. I, I would love it if it could happen with every set. I don't know if the logistics for that are going to work out. It's just outside the scope of what I do here. I'm not hiding information. I just can't give you the answer. Um, but I, there was a lot of us LSS folks in the room, and we all felt it. It was universal that it was a, a, just a very good vibe, a, a very good way to introduce the set. And th there was a, a couple other things going on, too. Um, and obviously, something like the celebrational won't necessarily uh, be echoed again. But man, that solo format in the celebrational kicking off, like our first look at uh, these heroes in constructed. I thought that was the coolest thing. And I think it set the stage so well for how these heroes work. And it's so much different than this abstract thing of, yes, these heroes are out there and, you know, you get to theorize and think about it, but having your first look be CC type games and having all their mechanics on display, especially when it came to like Olympia, Kasai, those warriors just sang in that solo format. They, they showed exactly what they were capable of. Um, so I, I'm kind of like dancing around the question, but ultimately I, I thought from both a content and a live event standpoint, everything about how heavy hitters was presented this last weekend was an absolute success. And I think we'd be foolish not to find ways to do more of those type of things. Yeah, watching that solo gameplay, watching following the celebration and watching that solo format made me want to play that format. That was like the the one of the, the format of it that I wanted to play the most. I'd love to see that be... You know, I, I love block constructed and magic. You know, that's it's there's some similarities I draw between that a little bit. And I think, you know, maybe it wouldn't have the longevity through a season, but you know, a release of a set comes out maybe the weekend after there's solo, you know, formats, things like that, whether it's a calling or something like that. That could be, I think, an amazing route for for um for organized play. So I know that's not your side, as you say, mm -hmm. but um it was great to watch. No, but I, you know, there's there's a reason we went with that format for the celebrational. It, it is something we dabbled in internally. And obviously, if you see it on the celebrational, it's something we discussed, you know, does this have a broader role in our ecosystem? Uh, and I, th I think you're exactly right, Hayden, as a small, small part, something that is occasionally featured. I, I always liked back in my competitive TCG days when there were oddball one-off tournaments. They're not for everyone. You know, the attendance usually does suffer. You can't do it over and over. Um, but is there a world where there's a future solo battle hardened or maybe even a solo calling? I, I don't think it's impossible. I, I think it takes the right format. I think heavy hitters was the right format to go ahead and do this in something like the six hero framework works really well for these spots. Um, but yeah, I am, I'm very interested in, in what role things like solo are going to have going forward for flesh and blood. Yeah. Yeah. 
I want to ask a question about limited specifically, just post the calling and reflecting back. And I think, you know, resoundingly heavy hitters is looking like an absolute success, right? In terms of limited and people have been enjoying as the same before sealed and both draft. And I want to know, you know, what are some of the learnings that yourselves, uh, the design and development team have taken from the previous sets where my anecdotally, Heavy hitters, it seems like people are, are happier than they've ever been with a limited format. And it's, it's early days, of course, pre-release is coming this weekend, but that was the the overwhelming vibe I got from players playing the limited format this weekend. How, how did you get there? What are some of the learnings that you took from Bright Lights or Uprising or these these prior limited formats to, to build this well-rounded heavy hitters limited format? Man, I think there's so many things going on simultaneously in heavy hitters that lead to it being really good. And we're going to have to unpack really carefully which are uh, repeatable lessons, which are things that, you know, maybe we've, we've missed in the past and had the opportunity to do and just didn't, and, and things that can't be repeated, things that are just unique to heavy hitters. And I do think the framework of heavy hitters lends itself quite well uh, to sealed play. And not every flesh and blood set is going to lend itself quite as well. Like things like the hybrid classes and uh, the, the overlap that is present in heavy hitters, it's really important for making sealed formats work. It does have, you know, other consequences, neither bad nor good, just realities that it presents as you head to the draft format. So not everything that we set out to do uh, set-wise is going to be able to be repeated when it comes to the sealed format. And I think you're right that this is our best sealed format of all time, but I don't necessarily know that we can take everything that happened in heavy hitters and be like, oh, we just do this in the next sealed format and that will be great. Each sealed format presents its own set of limitations. And sometimes uh, I, I do think we are willing to sacrifice a sealed format for the quality of a draft format if we have to, because draft will just be played way, way more. And uh, sometimes there's competing interests there. Mm-hmm. But as far as specifics as to what worked in the heavy hitters environment, uh, I think size of attacks is just a huge takeaway for me. Like the fact that you get raw efficiency from investing two cards into attacks rather than just being like, nope, I'm content with my gun or my hammer on this turn cycle. And that means I'm up on card value. I think that was a huge, huge turning point. Uh, Like a flat thing I will be exploring is do we just need more three for sevens, four for eights, two for sixes, rather than zero for fours in our format? Should we move up that baseline output a little bit more? Uh, Another, maybe, maybe the biggest success from a limited standpoint is the wager mechanic. And I think the thing that the wager mechanic does really beautifully is it creates those moments of interactions and on hits in classes that typically aren't about that in a way that feels very natural, very organic, and not uh, opposed to the class's typical mode of operation. So, you know, uh, typically warriors and brutes don't really deal in on hits all that often, but with wager, it's just all over the format. And that means all of your defense decisions are really interesting. The fact that you are uh, making an active decision every time you decide whether or not to wager means there's a lot more points of interaction and a lot more influence you get to have over the game. Uh, so that stands out to me as something that was really strong. I think gold is kind of the unsung hero of this set and all of its variants and, you know, gamble moments that it introduces there's a lot of spots where you just have to 
put two reds into a gold and hope you come out with a blue and that that's what your turn absolutely relies on or you know you're blue flooded and gold smooths out your hand a little bit and and keeps things rolling um so those kind of delayed draw effects i think really really shine in this space and then i would call out defense values there's <laughs> a lot of two blocks in this format a lot and i think it's a really good thing and i can also like lump in with that attack reactions in a format that doesn't have defense reactions like I, i'm sh I, I just know like I, I heard it i know a lot of people saw this set and were like oh my god attack reactions not defense reactions don't you just get killed all the time well sometimes you do yeah that's that's how this is meant to work you are supposed to end games and there's supposed to be some uh you know evasiveness to play patterns and i think you guys having now gotten to experience this set a bit uh it works I, I think it just works i don't think i have to sell anyone on that idea the the attack reactions without defense reactions absolutely works and it leads to quite exciting games mm. talk to me about all the different sort of gambling-esque mechanics that are in the set gambling is probably not the right word but i'm sure there is a word it's just hard to articulate but if you think about all the you know uh, wager, clash, even gold. Um, you can even say attack reactions to an extent. There's this, there's this extra layer that's going on where players are presenting information, but there's a second instance or layer of information that exists while that layer one is being played out. And both players have to try to figure out what the hidden information is, right? Do they have the attack reaction? Do they have the, do they have a attack on top of their deck that's higher, you know, higher value than mine? Um, you know, this wager that's going to on hit, do, you know, the attack reaction kind of goes with that. Are they going to pump it and get past my defensive value? Do I overblock? Like, is this, is this a, like an aspect of gameplay that you tried to inject into all the different facets of heavy hitters? Yeah, I, I mean, like so much of this set, the core of it was rooted in gambling. Obviously, the very theme mm -hmm. of the set is a place you come together and you wager on the outcome of these fights. It was just uh, always, always present from the earliest sketches of heavy hitters. And kind of the moment where I knew we were onto something special with the set was the first time in the dev room where everyone was gathered around a table watching a game play out. Sometimes this happens, you know, when there's like, uh, you know, only one round of a draft or, or one match in a draft waiting to finish before we move on to the next round or we're getting ready to break for lunch or whatever. And everyone just piles in around a game to see the outcome. Uh, or it's an interesting situation that we all want to observe. But the first time we were all piled around a game and a clash happened and it was just a huge high stakes clash and the top cards got flipped and like it was probably something like the warrior upset the guardian in a key spot and like or upset a ko in a in a key spot and got the token they needed to pop off in the next turn and the room just like exploded just like oh all over the place and i was like okay there's there's something really special going on here and that that second level of information is what creates that the mm -hmm. unknown mm -hmm. uh the excitement on every turn you know some turns in flesh and blood can either be or feel and i think this is actually especially true for folks who don't have the super deep level of knowledge like you understand the game you know how it plays uh, they can feel kind of scripted or on rails or mm -hmm. uh predetermined like there is when you get to the absolute mastery level there is that nuance that depth but for average players just like well obviously i'm going to block here and then on my turn i'm obviously going to do this adding that bit of uncertainty to the the middle there I think it's really, really critical. And I spoke a while back about variance in flesh and blood and how I thought the game needed a little bit more than it presently <laughs> had. And this is in the midst of, you know, like the old era. 
And people got very afraid by that statement. But this is what I was talking about. Like, this is absolutely the thing I envisioned. And I, I hope that, you know, now that people get to experience it, they will realize like this mode of variance is actually exciting, fun, replayable, and, and quite good for the game overall. Yeah, and it, it came alongside some follow-up questions. I think <laughs> it came alongside beat chess as well, which was like a a mechanic and brute that I thought would never occur purely because of that class being based on on variants. But uh, I just want to say, Brian, I think it's a really challenging aspect of game design to present players. You can argue intermediate or seasoned players with situations where they can almost validly take suboptimal lines. Um, like you said, in Flesh and Blood, it feels like the game can be a bit on rails. There is a correct way to do something something in an incorrect way. But I like it when you sort of blur those lines a bit and you make it so it does seem like there are these less optimal lines or these somewhat atypical play patterns that you can take to try to win a game that don't immediately seem incorrect. And Flesh and Blood was a game that felt a bit void of those situations. And I feel like Wager and Clash add more of that into the game. And you, I guess you could put a label on that however you want. Maybe Nuance is that label, but it's a very hard thing to introduce into design to where it doesn't feel completely random and just a variance flip. Mm. But I do feel like Heavy Hitters has sort of nailed that aspect. And you don't find it in a lot of other card games. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think as well. It's 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 this is tertiary, but I watched back some of the coverage and clash as a mechanic for coverage is phenomenal. And I think like that's something that I'm really keen to see. Is like I know in the past people have criticised, uh, you know, limited is not the most enjoyable to watch, but people loved watching this weekend. I I know Brian, you got to. I went back and watched my game with Viet. I know you got to. I think you got to cast that game, and that game I enjoyed so much for awesome. the clashes, the wages that we had, and I think that was yeah. I think that's a perfect example of what those mechanics can be. You know, you know, by two players who have spent a lot of time around the game, right, and and still understand the value of those mechanics, but also get to put themselves in spots and be like, well, you know, if I win this yet, like there was a clash where I had to lose the clash or I probably lost the game. Like, that, that, what kind of situation is that? Like, to not turn on Viet's equipment. Like, that's just, yep. it was the one clash I had to lose for the whole game and I probably had to win the rest. Just, I mean, yeah, those kind of yeah. those situations are fantastic. And I, I think those situations, the more you play the format, the more they present themselves and they're, they're just cool. Like, everything about the set is cool. And I'm glad you mentioned the coverage aspect. I, I think, first of all, uh, Flake, Craig, Ethan, Nathan, they, they did such an incredible job. Like, mm -hmm. they... It's so hard to call a new set like that. Like their job was mm -hmm. so, so hard on the weekend. And I, I think they absolutely nailed it. And I think they brought all the excitement of the mechanics and of heavy hitters to the forefront. And I, I hope that people, you know, there's a couple more callings coming up. We have Hartford, uh, we have Liverpool. And Hartford's going to have an all-star team. I don't know if we've announced that yet, but really, really cool coverage team for that one that I think everyone's going to be uh, very excited to check out. But I, I think if you, in the past, and this is the thing we have to kind of fight against. In the past, there's a lot of folks, Limited wasn't their thing for Flesh and Blood. Fair. You know, I, I, I get it. There was, there was things that had to get better about it and things we had to learn and steps we had to take. But I think we're in the midst of taking those steps right now and learning those things. And if limited was not your thing in the past, I really implore you to just check in with heavy hitters. Like it is, it is worth your time to at least see if something has changed for you here. Watch it, play it, do all those things, and and, and see if the meter has, you know, kind of shifted for you. Mm -hmm. 
is um is the lower defense value of a set the aggregate lower defense value of a set the future of flesh and blood limited design um because we talk a lot about fatigue on this podcast and sometimes our words do get misconstrued or people think we're talking about fatigue existing in the game but it's not it's it's primary strategy fatigue right this primary strategy attrition um sort of pile deck uh strategy in flesh and blood the lower defense value does seem to sort of stave that off a bit. I mean, it's also coupled with, like you said, more efficient three for sevens, four for whatevers, five for whatevers, um, that sort of make it so you can take these these turn cycles where you have more efficient trades. Um, you aren't simply trying to just win on card value via utilizing your weapon. Is that lower defense value? Do you think that that specifically, that bottom right-hand corner of the card is the future of Flesh and Blood Limited design? It, it doesn't have to be specifically that, but I think heavy hitters was a step towards a fundamental shift in flesh and blood limited design. I think the next set completes that step mm-hmm. and I'll come back and talk to you about that when <laughs> it happens. And I, I, I think you'll know it when you see it. And I think we'll talk more about it when the time comes. Yeah. I, I have to ask a follow-up question to that because it's something that's been, um, something that actually you, you uh, I'm, I know you met Tom Dowling. Uh, for, calling mm-hmm. finalist at, at Melbourne, and yeah. and he asked, he asked. I said to him, I said, any questions you want to ask Brian? He had a great question, and it's something that we actually talked about on the weekend. You know, we think the the defensive value and the attacks. And you you spoke about weapons. Actually, we were talking about this in our group. You don't attack with your weapons a lot in this limited format. You know, comparative to what you'd think, given that there's weapons for every hero. You know, it doesn't become this weapon attrition kind of base thing. You know, the warriors, yes, they're weapon centric, but the the brutes and the particular guardians, you you know, you don't attack with your weapon a whole lot as much as you might expect. And this kind of came to this question of, you know, there's a lot of cards in the set, and the limited format in particular looks like there's a lot of effectively zero for fours effectively zero for fours but not in the way you traditionally think there's not many one card zero for fours but there's almost like you can value a card at, at, at four basically you know you've got the block cards obviously you've got attacks that wager uh, a token that in some aspects you might attribute one one point of damage to might tokens specifically are and you know there's a lot of you know effectively four value on a card what does that mean for the long term? Because some people might see that as power creep in a way. And obviously, you've got Clash, you've got, you know, the, the variance of Wager. But what does that mean for the long term of the game? Is that sustainable or is that something that you have to be quite careful of? I think it is sustainable. And I, I think we've sort of earned some credibility around power creep. Like, obviously, we are not just in- increasing the output of our cards over time to sell cards. Like, I, I think people know that about us now we are we are conscious of power creep we are thoughtful about it it happens it will always happen in tcgs that's kind of how these things go uh but we're actively managing it and we're always thinking about it and one of the things that i think is really interested interesting about this limited format is maybe offensive output is creeped up a bit from where it's been in past sets but you know what else is creeped up a little bit? Defensive equipment. Like defensive equipment in this set just looks like nothing it's ever looked like before. How many pieces of temper two limited equipment did you see in the past? It was just basically an impossibility. And then there's, you know, plenty of blade break twos on top of it. And, uh, you know, other pieces just all over the place. And you can get quite a bit of block value in your equipment suite. So I think that it's always contextual. I think it was safer to move up a lot of those limited numbers in this environment because we did have access to that equipment, because we did have access to a lot of three for sevens, because there was a lot of evasion. So 
you, you could move up those numbers pretty safely. Do they always move up in the future? No, I, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think like zero for four is just are littered all over the place. That's not really the goal. It's just you do have to be cognizant of the broader environment. And I think this is starting to play out in constructed as well, because heroes are starting to fill out their legendary equipment sets. And that's something that was always going to happen. And at some point, most heroes, most classes that have been around for a while will be able to present four legendary equipments if they want to. They'll probably get a little bit more block value that way. They probably get a little bit more out of that suite. So it becomes a little safer to make more powerful cards and know that they're not just going to steamroll an opponent on turn one, turn two. Um, so, uh, like, I don't know if this directly answers the question. I, I, I will just say that we think about those things and it is not as simple as just reducing its numbers. It's more about the environment you present those numbers in and whether it works in that environment. Last time you were on the pod, we spoke about Brute. Of course, we always have to talk about Brute and we're in a Brute set. So, one of the things that we, I asked you specifically about the kind of design philosophy behind Brute. And I know Brendan actually echoed some of those questions as well. Um, and we talked about the philosophy of, I guess, um, variants and higher ceilings in particular. And you you pointed to Brute specifically for that. You know, you didn't say it should be a dice rolling class, but you did talk about kind of some of the the, the random aspects. But then you go and print Beat Chess, which I think we're all take, uh, taken back by a little bit, just given, you know, it's it's the, the variance aspect is maybe a lot less than you might expect from a Brute mechanic. What's the kind of story behind Beat Chess? How did you come to that mechanic? And, you know, is that in kind of direct contrast to how we'd seen or how how you were thought Brute was going to go. It's funny because I would actually push back on the idea that B-Chess does not offer variants. And I understand you control the discard. Like you get that choice. And it, it is more modal than maybe you have seen out of Brute cards and you get more influence over exactly what's going to happen. However, I think the B-Chess mechanic like a beat chess card in and of itself is almost purposely statted to be under curve. It's mm -hmm. not supposed to be exciting. Beat chess becomes exciting when you combine it with other beat chess things. And the variance inherent in beat chess is putting together multiple beat chess pieces to get output, which exceeds the ceiling. So is it a different form of variance? Absolutely. And I, I think card game players enjoy engaging with variants, even if sometimes they don't think they do, but they also enjoy manipulating that variance in ways that give them agency. I think that's exactly what beat chest is designed to do. And you can, you know, you can even talk about the fact that if you're using a beat chest card in Reinar, well, you're still intimidating at random. Like a lot of the output is still going to be predicated on random outcomes that come along the way. And I think it was it was an effort, it was a very focused and purposeful effort to simultaneously give Brutes a bit of agency, for sure, a bit more agency than they've had in the past, but making sure that the payout for that agency was not inherent in love itself. So B if B-Chest becomes the most efficient thing to do in the Brute class, to me, that's a problem. That's a betrayal, the core tenets of Brutes. If B-Chest becomes part of a strategy in the brute quest. And I think that's why you see it in a fairly limited dose, quite frankly, in this set. Uh, if it becomes a small part of the brute game plan and uh, occasionally combines with other beat chess cards to push out output that is not typically seen from those uh, particular card numbers, then I think it's succeeding. And the Genesis was very much rooted in 
finding a way to give agency without solving the whole puzzle. Like it's just, it's not going to be fun for everyone if the variance leaves the brute class. You want that to still be out there. We just had to find a different way to engage with it. Um, I sort of, I don't want to tangent too much off heavy, heavy hitters, but I do want to ask you in the context of some heroes leaving our class constructed format, do you think a mechanic like ice will ever come back into the game? Yes. Absolutely. What about, uh, what about ice was healthy for flesh and blood? And what about ice was unhealthy? I, I think the healthiest thing ice did was to slow down the game and, and let games be a longer affair. And there's several decks that, uh, were out there during ice's sort of heyday that if ice was not present, they would have been pretty silly. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, things like fully powered fives and, uh, you know, even the rune blades along the way. I think the fact that ice was around to, to check on them from time to time was a very, very healthy thing. Uh, the thing I don't like about ice is when players do not feel like they get a chance to participate in the game. Mm-hmm. I, I think the worst ice deck that has ever existed, the most, heinous, unfun. The thing that kind of like illustrated some of the quote unquote problems with ice was the Lexi deck that was just completely predicated on locking your opponent out of the game. I, I don't know what like its its name is, but I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. Just extremely ice focused, uh, played Death Dealer. It was not a deck that I was happy to see around. I was happy when it showed up because it was such a change of pace. Like it was not the default Lexi, and it was a very, very rare thing. So it doing well at a tournament, uh, as it did at a few tournaments along the way. Uh, I think maybe one of the last Asian battle hardens that had quite a good day one. Um, that was that was okay. I, I was fine with that outcome. If that was ever the best deck, I think it would have been a real problem. So I like Ice as a speed bump. I do not like Ice as prison, if that makes mm. sense. Are you a fan of any card game design or mechanics that stop players from playing cards and participating in the game in any sense. Cause this is a conversation I had um, about a different game recently. And you know, these kind of mechanics, like is the, is the perfect game, is the perfect card game, a game that takes away all of those, like uh, those, I don't even know what you would call them, but of course in magic, there's a lot of words that, you know, these prison mechanics, like you can't play your cards, your cards cost more and fun- you're throwing off the curve of your deck and you're left with extra cards in hand. Like do those mechanics have any, any place in a game of flesh and blood? It's, it's really hard to find a sweet spot. Like if you have to now pitch a blue to play your zero cost attack, I don't think that's the end of the world. I'm pretty happy with that. If you look at your hand and say pass, I think that's just, just a very different story. Like you're asking two different questions in that scenario. So uh, is there ever supposed to be a deck that for eight turns of the game. If it does its thing, you never play a single card and uh, then they win in the end. No, that should, that should not happen. Um, But it's all about degrees. And I like, I actually coming up in magic, this may hit with you or may not, depending on how long you played magic. I love the winter orb decks. I love stasis decks. I I loved like quasi lock decks. I, I thought they were interesting. And if they were not the best deck in the format and they showed up very, very rarely, I thought it was a fine part of the tournament experience, not a fine part of the casual experience. I don't want it to be the thing you faced on at Armory, but if like somebody truly believes that this is the best deck they can take to a calling and they're the only person in the room who thinks that and they show up and they lock their opponents out for a day, 
and they go on and win the calling. And then the next day, everyone changes three cards in their 80 and those decks can't win anymore. I think that's an awesome story. And I'm actually like really, really happy with that outcome. It's just about sustained success for playing the game in that fashion. I think that is a real problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I yeah, heard this. That's a tough one. I heard a meme. It was um it was like if a if a magic player could design the perfect card for whatever card game, it would be like Chalice of the Void or something. It's just like these uh these mechanics are yeah. Um I think Flesh and Blood has done very good so far. And um I'm a player who likes those mechanics. I don't I don't know why. Um but of course, you know, there's Infinity Towards Kano, which is also a very unfun um version of that. It's not necessarily ice, not necessarily you can't play your cards, but you know, killing you out of nowhere, killing you from your starting life total is not necessarily an engaging and uh, uh, dual experience, maybe one-sided a bit. I want to ask you about the current state of Living Legend. Are you satisfied with it? Do you think that it will undergo another change in the near future? Yeah, I, I think the issue with that is I just don't know. Like, I, I think that the celebrational sample size is not large enough to make conclusions about the Living Legend format. I do know that one of the best flesh and blood players in the world, Brody Spurlock, brought Lexi mm -hmm. and defeated a Starvo to go ahead and win his tournament. Thought that was a really cool outcome. Uh, he he told me he believed Lexi was the best deck. Uh, if Lexi is the best deck, then other options open up. And I, I think like I think we got Starvo to a manageable place right now. Maybe it still proves itself to be the best deck. Uh, maybe it you know still needs another card taken off of it. Maybe uh, something else needs some prints and then it can go ahead and contend with that throne. On the whole, what I saw out of the celebrational, I was very, very happy with. Mm. Sample size is just too small to say whether or not we've done the job. And I think that's going to be a bit of a problem with the Living Legend format uh, in these early stages. But we played a bunch leading up to these decisions. They weren't made arbitrarily. And we were quite happy with what we found after these restrictions were in place. Um, and I am optimistic that the next time we have a, a big you know, battle hardened at the end of a Pro Tour weekend or something like that, I think we'll see something a little bit better. And if we don't, we're going to keep working on it. Like we, we will continue to, to tweak and get things right around the living legend format. Mm. What are your thoughts on living legend itself? Like the speed at which classic constructed heroes are rotating. Are you happy with it? Um, how heroes get points or gain points in living legend? Do you think that system is in a good place right now? Do you think it will undergo another change? Cause this is a system that has historically changed quite drastically. I'm not sure, Brian, if you're aware of its, its original, um, the genesis of living legend, but it was, it was very interesting. Uh, the heroes would accrue basically 20 wins or something like that. And each player would get their name written out on the website. And if it accrued 20 wins in a limited calling or constructed calling, it would leave the format forever. Uh, I just want to ask you about the current state, you know, because obviously it's been the volume now has been turned up a bit. Things are moving out faster. Are you happy with the current uh, regulation that Living Legend is doing? And do you think it will see any changes in the near future? I think it's in a good spot right now. I think the the numbers around the system are always in flux. Like mm -hmm. they aren't designed to be static numbers. They are just designed to account for things like release schedule and uh, you know the pace of rotation we're looking for. And uh, from what I've seen, it is doing its job very very well right now. And our projections over the next um, and we do, by the way, project all of this stuff out. Like it is it is very thoughtful. We have you know, spots where we think X hero is going to be leaving. I mean, they're not a hundred percent accurate, but we've been pretty good lately. We've been doing a good job, uh, just seeing our predictions come to fruition. And, 
Um, I, I am I am quite satisfied with the pace of things. I think honestly, it was too slow previously. I, I think things were just not moving quickly enough uh, for a non-rotating game to stay fresh. I, I do think there's got to be some churn in those heroes. And the thing that is really complementing this living legend system really well right now is our release cadence of heroes, just getting more and more heroes into the game. So I think it's kind of two-pronged. Uh, it, just in a vacuum, it may seem like an acceleration, but there are going to be more heroes coming out for sure. A lot of heroes this year, a uh, lot of exciting heroes. And I just, I want things to stay fresh. And I understand, you know, some people want to just play their one hero forever and they may not get to do that. Yeah. It, it just is what it is. Like you, you don't necessarily, we all enjoy things in different ways and you kind of have to shape the world of a TCG to make sure as many people are happy playing the game as possible. And yes, some people would like to just play the same hero in perpetuity. Uh, you know, they, they bought their Bravo deck in Welcome to Wraith and they are going to use it for the next 20 years and happily do so. A lot of people do not want that and they don't want to see the same heroes on the other side of the table for 20 years. So we have to kind of balance those two interests. But I think the state of Living Legend right now is doing a very good job of that. Hmm. Um, I, I want to ask you a question. I want to revisit a question from the previous pod we did with you, actually, which is we touched on consistency. And we talked about or we discussed kind of consistency and, and how dominant that had kind of been in, in the history of Flesh and Blood in terms of consistent strategies with decks. And you you spoke about this kind of idea of raising the um, ceiling but lowering the floor to an extent, you know, bringing in some aspects of, of variance in that. And you at the start of the pod, you talked about mechanics like clashes as an indicator of that. But introducing more variance alongside consistency with this this kind of dynamic, you said there should be no one way, right? Consistency has its place, but you want to bring in more aspects of of the ceiling and this floor. How does heavy has play into that in terms of like the constructed and the long term? And is this a signal of the the direction for design uh, in both constructed and limited when it comes to this idea of consistency versus ceilings and floors? Yeah, I, I think I think heavy here uh, heavy hitters is a good spot to explore these two different branches because i do think there are heroes which have extremely consistent game plans in heavy hitters the one that really stands out to me is kasai kasai will just kind of grind you into dust she's very very good at doing the same thing across multiple turn cycles making smart defense decisions resetting those dynamos over and over uh, she's she's got to play in other play styles as well i, I think kasai is quite a versatile hero um but she, she's just very very uh, like kind of routine output, I would say. You expect to get the same thing on a turn-to-turn -turn basis, play good defense at the end of the game. You set up your army, you set up your blood on your hands, whatever your end game is, and then you benefit from that. And, and I really like that play style. Kasai is a lot of fun to play, even if she is a quote-unquote more consistent deck. Then I think you start to look at things like KO comes to mind. I think even Betsy comes to mind to a small extent, which is pretty unique for a Guardian, honestly, where I, I think Betsy's turn-to-turn -turn output can be quite variable. And she is looking to go a little bit bigger than we've seen heroes go in the past and uh, set up these kind of very large turns. And she can, again, all these heroes can play in other fashions as well. Uh, something like KO has multiple branching paths, but one of them probably involves Berserk. One of them probably involves cast bones like there's there's a lot of things to explore with ko that are kind of variable high ceiling outputs 
maybe a little vulnerable to disruption along the way. But if you sort of get to do your thing unchecked, like everyone's seen the tweets at this point. Yeah, you can put together 40 damage turns with KO as your ceiling. Like that is absolutely real. And we are aware of that. We absolutely know that. You can also have some absolute garbage hands along the way. You can have berserks that do nothing. All, all those things are very, very possible. And I think putting those two here, specifically Kasai and Ko, side by side, you can kind of see both sides being explored simultaneously. I don't think we would have gone as hard in the past. I don't think we would have gone as hard on the KO side of things. We might've gotten a little scared around some of those outputs and been like, uh, is this okay? Do we need to tone this down a little bit? I think averaged out across turns and across games, it's okay. I got, that is my stance. And you know, maybe the community will prove me wrong. They end up with a better KO deck than we ever had. We'll see. But my, my belief is that we have done a good job of introducing some risk, introducing some really high ceilings, introducing a deck for that player who, you know, might be middle of the road in terms of skill expression, but they can go get hot. They can go get hot at a calling. They can go get hot, at least at their local armory and, and spike those berserks all day and have a heck of a time and, you know, steal a tournament out of nowhere. And I'm really excited with that outcome. Yeah. I do think that you all at LSS, the design team should, should, and the develop, development team, of course, uh, should take risks. I think you should. Um, I, I know a lot, there was some commentary uh on twitter talking about how some of the sets you know they were a bit safer but i do think that you know having having powerful decks having powerful strategies is okay and you know when you occasionally do shoot a bit too close to the sun maybe the ko deck is broken in some way you didn't see in in, in development like that's okay that's a good thing that's exciting for players like us because that means those decks exist and we can exploit those decks and we can take them to tournaments that that's what makes deck building right. in interesting staying on rails and you know building the archetypical um ko deck that is very very clear uh, as soon as the set releases is much less exciting than saying oh is there this niche card from you know three years back at this point that can break this archetype and i think if the game if the game needs to you know stutter a bit sometimes because there are strategies that are not what you expected in development that's okay and i think that makes yeah. that makes the game very very interesting no I, I think i'm i'm ready to discuss like the that kind of turn down period in a bit more detail right now and uh, there's just kind of like two things that are simultaneously happening there like we as and i think the two sets that everyone talks about and you know mostly fairly as a little bit lower power level are dust till dawn and bright lights and those two sets kind of came out right next to each other so it looks like a overall powering down of the game while those sets are being developed we're kind of dealing with some of the aftermaths of Tales of Aria. They're mm -hmm. unpacking themselves during that time. You know, we're, we're banning a lot of cards. I, I think it's fair to say that we had a lot of bans for a period of time. Um, I think all good bans, thoughtful bans, but it was a lot. It, it was a lot of bans on a week-to-week -week basis. And so we're kind of trying to slow that down a little bit. And then I'll talk about the risks of the two sets independently. So you go back till, to Dust Till Dawn and you look at what had reached Living Legend at that point and the historically, quote unquote, most broken decks we had ever seen, uh, there's Chain, there's Original Prism, and there's just kind of the shadow light setup. And mm -hmm. it was a really risky space to dive back into. And I, I do think had we released a Prism that just took over the game and did the same thing as old Prism, I think a lot of people would have been really upset about that. And uh, so we look to do something new and something exciting. And 
maybe played it a little bit too safe in retrospect uh, with that. And Vincent, I, I think Vincent is going to be just fine. I'm actually still very happy with Vincent as a hero. And uh, there's just, you know, maybe people expected a little bit more out the gate where he's going to be a bit of a slow burn or excuse me, she's going to be a bit of a slow burn and, and take a bit of time to develop. I'm okay with that outcome. And, you know, we look at heroes like Leviah and Bolton. They went from absolute trash tier to tier two heroes right now. I, like, I think it's very reasonable to see either of those heroes go ahead and win a tournament. And they did need to wait for ice to leave the metagame and those powerful outliers to leave the metagame. But, but we knew that was going to happen. So on the whole, I actually think the outcomes of Dust Till Dawn were okay, given the scenarios we were facing. But I understand as a player, that's not what you want. You kind of just like want the broken thing and you want the super powered thing. And, and, you know, where the comparison is past heroes that were very, very broken, I understand people feeling a bit let down by that. So, you know, lesson learned. Mm -hmm. We then move to Bright Lights. And for the first time in the game's history, we're going to make a one class set. And we're going to release three new mechanologists in that set. And so if we just juice these mechanologist cards and they come out too hot, it's not that like one mechanologist races to living legend. It's that, well, that one's gone. Now here's the backup one. And there's one behind that and one behind that. And also now this class has the largest card pool in the entire game to draw from. So yeah, we played it a little safe again, a little siloed. Uh, you know, again, I think some of those heroes... Uh, you know, Dash IO is really happy with where Dash IO landed. Had that very, very cool performance from Thomas Dowling down in uh, Melbourne. I, I thought that was an awesome story for her. Max and Tekla Boston came up a little short. I, I think, again, just, uh, you know, a few cards that could have been in the set ultimately didn't make the cut. And had they been there, I think we might have been looking at a different story, but we played a little too safe. And We'll address that over time now. One of the one of the beautiful things about having access to this expansion slot is it's we don't have to wait to come back around to you know the next bright lights. We can go ahead and and fill in any gaps right now. And you saw that certainly with the new Luminaris trying to just sort of give people the simple prism weapon they wanted the entire time and not making them work so hard. And we're good with that. We're okay with you know we had our time where we asked you to solve a very difficult puzzle, maybe an unsolvable one, who knows? And it didn't quite happen. Um, so now we can correct that and we'll do that with these sets. And it wasn't about powering the game down forever. It was about two very high risk environments, uh, where we had to make some difficult calls. And frankly, we came out a little bit on the safe side, but that is not our long-term intention. It's not how we always approach these things. So, yeah, well, I appreciate you being candid about there. Can, how do you say that word? I always mispronounce it. That, that candid, yeah, <laughs> candid about that, that, <laughs> Brendan, like, can, I ask you a, can I ask you a very odd question? Yeah. When, how old were you when you started reading? I don't know. What do you think? No, no. What do you think? You think I was a young reader? Here's my theory. <laughs> There's something called, uh, I, I believe it's referred to as hyperliteracy. And it, it, it develops when people learn to read at a very young age, often at the exclusion of all other things. They're very avid readers. And they actually sort of learn to read before their language processing skills develop all the way. And so, and 
like another effect of hyperliteracy is you tend to engage more with books than you do other people. And therefore, your conversations are in your mind and with your books and you create your own pronunciation for a lot of words. I did this. I started reading when I was three years old and I basically only interacted with books for like the first five years of my uh, my life that I remember. And I have the exact same problem where I just pronounce words like yeah. in the fashion that I read them all the time. And that's why I was wondering if it also applied to you. Yeah, I think uh, for me, it's just like my brain gets a little ahead of my mouth sometimes, you know, it's, it's okay. like, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but um, I mean, that definitely, your description definitely does apply to me, mostly due to uh, being a hyper introvert, I think. Um, it's just like yep. a, a natural progression. I do... But I do, like I was saying, I do appreciate you being so um, upfront about that aspect of the game because it's interesting to hear it as a retrospective from someone who was part of the, the team that sort of, arc, you know, was behind building that experience, right? Mm -hmm. And that you were cognizant of its effects, both in design and post-design as it was played by the player, uh, by the by the player base here. So it's one of my, mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons I love having you on is because, um, you know, a lot of people look at the design of flesh and blood and, you know, when it maybe doesn't go in the way that they wanted to or the way that they planned, they assume that there's a level of ignorance behind it, right? That it wasn't by design, but to see that the team does things so intentionally and when they do get it wrong, you know, is willing to sacrifice a level of ego to learn those lessons. It only sort of, it gives us more hope in the game, right? It's a good, it's a very, very good thing to hear. So I appreciate that. I do want to ask you though, which is a a key design of flesh and blood talents are they gone forever and what is the problem my what, question as well yeah what's the problem <laughs> with talents like what what is the inherent game design issue with talents um i'm assuming there is one um could you explain that to us and can you tell us about the future of talents there's no problem with talents and we just made some untalented sets that's it man we've just been making some untalented sets we had cool things we wanted to explore no problem with talents mm -hmm. do you think uh, they'll they make a, a little, comeback little hiatus Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. It's so funny. Like, uh, so, so the last three sets, right, mm -hmm. are Outsiders, Dust Till Dawn, Bright Lights, and now Heavy Hitters. So it, I guess it expands to four sets. But, like, people started this narrative back when, like, Bright Lights came out. There's three sets there. One of them is talented, two aren't. So at that point, we're just on a rotation. Now we made the second non-talented set in a row. And that's the breaking point. Everyone's like, well, talents are gone forever. They're not going to make any more. They're just out of the game. We're like, no, we made some non-talented sets. That's all. There's no problem. I, yeah, I think it's a limited gameplay aspect. Like, I think that's that was my question was more about, you know, we had Dust of Dawn, but it's an expansion set, right? So we haven't seen, it's been almost two years since we've seen talent, talented heroes in a limited environment. Yeah, I think fair. that was... That was kind of the question I was going to angle at is, you know, that's a better, but I, I think you've kind of answered it. That's, that's a better question, but there's also no problem with them there. And you will see talented draft sets in the future. How do you, um, how do you fix, how do you design for wizard in the future? Because of Aether Wildfire is obviously a design limitation. Obviously we got our, we got our 18th, uh, reprint of blue zap. Like, what is the future of Wizard? How do you how do you break from the the confines of what is Aether Wildfire, and what is the future design of Wizard? Like, how can you make Kano a fun and engaging experience without it having Brennan, this combo? You sound like the Brutes before Heavy Hitters released. Like, it's just been a while since we made a Wizard set. It's been a little while now. Yeah. And like the last one was very Icelander focused, mm -hmm. which I think brought some very different things to the table. It wasn't like a core Wizard set. Like, I actually think the last pure Wizard set was Arcane Rising, which Arcane is Rising, yeah. forever ago at this point. So I think your questions will be answered 
when we make another wizard set, which we will do. I will also say that if Ether Wildfire was the thing that was preventing us from making good wizards or good wizard cards, I would just ban that card. Like, mm -hmm. I, it's not worth it being like this card gets to stick around forever. If I thought that was a hard limitation, it would it would just be gone by now. And mm -hmm. I, I think the reality is that wizard is a pretty weak class right now and it actually needs ether wildfire to stand on because if we took that away uh, it, it needs a full set worth of stuff it doesn't need an expansion slot card it needs kind of like uh, a lot more before it's willing to compete with modern heroes so mm -hmm. i will tell you the same thing as the brutes like uh, we we did not abandon wizard we have ideas for wizard wizards will rise once more yeah, my question actually, what it comes from is 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 less me sort of uh, ruminating on this 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 lack of wizard cards, but it's more the question you asked me when we were at Barcelona because Brian Gottlieb comes up to me behind the curtain, you know, backstage, and he goes, "Would you prefer, like, if we had to ban Ether Wildfire to have different Kano or different wizard strategies and to print more and more?" sort of dynamic and um new whatever i'm losing the words but new wizard cards would you prefer us to do that or what like what do you think was better? that was kind of what you asked me you're asking so i was like hmm i don't know like is is aether what is what makes wizard wizard like why is wizard fun is it because it can combo and it can kill p from zero is it because of the evasion is it because of draw card it draws cards i don't know because losing aether wildfire losing the combo potential is losing part of the identity i think but at the same time, it might be what keeps us away from having, you know, more interesting card design with Kino. I was mostly thinking about your question because it, I, I honestly don't know how you, how you, um, how you've not fixed, but I don't know how you expand the, the, the wizard card pool without, you know, degenerate strategies forming. Cause it is, I feel mm -hmm. like arcane damage, instant speed, and the ability to draw cards are inherently degenerate things, almost inherently degenerate things in flesh and blood. Like they're very dangerous. They're very dangerous. And I think, uh, you know, in the past, you saw things like Life Total used to mitigate that. That'll mm -hmm. probably be a tool in our belt in the future. But it, man, I just think the design skill, the design space has only grown since mm -hmm. that time. One of the benefits of having the core players be the same throughout this entire endeavor means that everyone on the team is only getting stronger. Mm -hmm. Like we, there's there's been no like real substantial turnover in our team for quite a long period of time and like since i've come on basically there there really hasn't been anything that has changed we've only been additive and that means we're just getting better and better at our jobs and for you know you can go even a level deeper like that some folks like james and chris who have been here since the absolute beginning like those cards that they had to design when they designed Arcane Rising, however many years ago, there, there were certainly uh, figments of Arcane Rising that existed even before the release of WTR, although it mm -hmm. did get smoothed out after that point. But the stuff they were doing back then, just they have infinitely more knowledge now. They know so much more. They've been through it for six years straight, living this life where they only think about this one thing. There are solutions and there's good shit to explore for sure. Yeah. Well, how, uh, how has the new office impacted LSS and working at the company? Like, it, I mean, this is a big, this is a big change for y'all. It's beautiful, man. It is, it is such a beautiful office, state of the art, uh, coming into the space, just, you know, 
sun and brightness and glass and windows. And uh, I have my own office in the space, which was a, a really hard thing for me. Like I, I do work on the bridge between design and development, but I often just like had to not go to the office if I was looking to work on the design side. There's too much stuff, too much conversations. I couldn't really be sort of in the pit with everyone else figuring this stuff out while I was working on some of these other issues. So, uh, you know, for me personally, just having my own space carved out is, is a big deal. Um, one of the coolest things, I don't know, you can see these walls behind me right now. Uh, this wall, the wall on this side of me, this is white, like whiteboard. I can mm -hmm. draw all over this. And I had to erase my Mad Men scribbles before I came on with you so you <laughs> can get to see the future of flesh and blood. But um, like little things like that make our collaborative spaces so much more get so much more better. We have these huge conference rooms all over the place where we can have breakout sessions. And like, I am a huge, huge believer in work environments being critical to output. And, you know, our, our last space was fine. It was fine. That's the only way to describe it. It was, it was an office building. Um, it was acceptable. It had room for us to work in, you know, things you would expect, kitchen, toilet, you know, very, very Spartan in its approach. Didn't have the technology everywhere, didn't have these cool features, didn't have the beauty everywhere. And I'm sure you guys got a little peek from the the celebrational <laughs> guests. Um, it's just a stunning space and it is only going to help us in, in very subtle ways. I don't think it, you know, changes the game or anything, but uh, it, it certainly feels a lot better to show up at the office every day. I'll say that. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, do you have any, um, sorry, Hayden, I heard, I heard your inhale. I promise this is my last, one of my last questions. I do have a couple more. Um, do you have any heavy hitters pre-release tips for people listening to this? I think we'll aim to, sure. I might release it before pre-release. I think I will, uh, which will, um, so I'll try to get it out to people before they all play on the weekend. What are some pre-release tips you have for the set? Uh, go listen to the Arsenal Path <laughs> limited set review. I think that's a nice way to engage. Before I played my first ever limited flesh and blood tournament, that is how I prepared. I listened to the Tales of Aria, uh, you know, draft yeah. set review. I, I think you guys got a lot of things wrong in that. And by the way, and you set me up for some failures along the way, but that's okay. I forgive you. Uh, I, I think you did a better job this time, and I think it is uh, very much worth listening to. And uh, yeah, I, I think explore I, I think we've made a dent in this limited format there's other wrinkles trust yourself don't get too caught up in the prevailing wisdom but i i do think players are getting to like some of the cores and understanding uh you know some of the cards that maybe look more exciting on their face and then are a little bit more fair when you actually get to play them uh you know the one that really stands out to me is fatal engagement i i think you guys about nailed that card on your review I, I think that card does have a massive ceiling can steal games out of nowhere but when it goes wrong man it goes really really wrong uh i'm still playing it like definitely red fatal engagement blue fatal mm -hmm. engagements are absolutely making my decks but i am often quite scared of what that card can do to a turn cycle um but yeah i i you know just be open experiment see what works for you use it as an opportunity to learn and when it comes time for things like the calling, like the pro tour, then you can buckle down and really try and understand, okay, what is my optimal approach here? But for the time being, have fun, explore. Hayden, I wanna give you a chance. 
I have one final question. Intellect. Are we going to mess around with intellect? Probably. I don't see why not. It's not, it's not off limits to me. Um, you know, it'll, it'll be unique. We'll find a way. I, I mean, I think there's kind of two prongs to that. There's intellect as it appears printed on a hero, and there's intellect as a thing that is present throughout the game. I think both, both can be targeted. I, I just, and I don't have any rails. I don't think there's any, don't touch this, don't do this. Like they just don't exist. If you find smart ways to do things, we're going to do them. If they create fun, compelling gameplay experiences, we will do them. There's, there's nothing that's off limits. And my last thing is, uh, it's not really a question, but I just want to say what a, what an unusual and fantastic experience uh, the Arsenal Pass's relationship with Brian Gottlieb has been. Our first, we first met Brian Gottlieb. I mean, it's 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 weird because I feel like you've grown up, but not in a bad way, but in a very very good way. Met Brian, um, you know, sort of at the tail end of your magic, your magic escapade, your career, as you were just getting interested in the Flesh and Blood, and then fast forward a couple years, and you're now the lead game designer um, of of Flesh and Blood. It's just it's it's incredible, and you've. I appreciate that you've given us as much time as you have and have been willing to come to this podcast and explain what goes on behind the scenes. And I've said it many, many times and every single time you've come on that I do think that this is one of the better things that you can do for the game. Because when you talk about the game, you genuinely inspire so much confidence for the future. Um, and I really cannot overstate that. But what a wild ride it's been. I'm sure you know, you're the one that's living it and experiencing it, but just these past- welcome. Welcome to my life, man. This is, it has been a never-ending string of just nonsense and weird occasions, especially as it relates to my professional career, which has covered uh, every conceivable basis now from poker player to bartender to lawyer to game designer. It, I, I mean, I'm glad I'm getting old because I now I think I'm finally at the spot where I just want to do this until mm -hmm. I'm done. Like I, this is where I want to be. I love it here. Uh, I love making this game. And I, I don't feel that kind of wanderlust anymore that I always had where I was just like, okay, what's next? Uh, what's the next thing I'm going to do? It feels like I found my home. Uh, but it, along the way, shit got weird. And uh, <laughs> I, I am happy for it not to be weird for a little while. Yeah. Um, many are, many are denied their place in history simply because they did not earn their first coin. You know who wrote that, Brian? I'm familiar with that piece. Yeah. yeah. Now, to be fair, I do think our creative team did a little, uh, little editing probably before it actually hit the card, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. All right. Brian. Yeah, I, I did dabble a bit with flavor text in this set. I just want to give you, um, some time to shout out anything you want to shout out, uh, you know, tell people what to, I don't know, give them any recommendations it, for the weekend. Uh, this, yeah. is, this is all I got. I, I play, I play flesh and blood all day and then I make flesh and blood cards. So just keep playing the game, keep enjoying it. Uh, I am so happy with the state of the game and the state mm -hmm. of our player base. Like when I go out and meet you all in person, it's, it's the coolest thing I get to do. And I am eternally grateful for all the support we get. And, uh, not only the support, but the passion. And even when that manifests with disagreeing, like I said, I never, ever fault someone for disagreeing with something we do. The only thing that you can get me riled up about is when you suggest we don't care 
but we didn't think about it. Those those are like my two triggering sentiments. I promise you neither of those things are true. These bags under my eyes, they don't come <laughs> from being well-rested. They come from working on flesh and blood all the time and caring a lot about it. So uh, anything other than that, though, keep doing what you're doing. Keep enjoying it. Keep supporting it. And I appreciate you. Awesome. Well, if you're listening to this and you enjoy it, the number one thing you can do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There's a video version of this on YouTube at youtube.com slash Pass. We're all on Twitter, Brendan APG, Finn underscore Dale, Brian GFAP, recently rebranded. Um, special thank you to all the Arsenal Pass patrons. You know, we'll be getting those deck decks and deck guides coming out soon as we gear for Pro Tour LA, where we'll be drafting heavy hitters as well. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>